0: Welcome to OCD Whisperer Podcast. This is your host, Christina Orlova. Here we talk about all things OCD. If you're looking for help, download my free OCD Survival Kit. It's packed with resources and bonus worksheets to support you on your journey. Go to www.coreresults.com.
1: Welcome to OCD Whisperer Podcast. Today with me, I have Drew Linsalata, and Drew is the creator and host of the Anxious Truth Podcast, which boasts 3 million downloads and a thriving, engaged social media community. Drew is also an author, educator, and advocate in the anxiety disorder community, a graduate student in clinical mental health counseling, and a therapist in training. A former sufferer of panic disorder, agoraphobia, and clinical depression for more than 25 years before fully recovering, Drew has lived the experience that he speaks and writes about. Welcome to the show. Drew.
2: Thank you, Christina. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad that you said yes, because I in seeing a lot of your um, actual Instagram uh, stuff. You know, I know you talk a lot about panic and, you know, I've not actually kind of had any episode about specifically panic and there's so many people that struggle with this. So, um, you know, I wonder if we can start off by just if you can share with us a little bit about, you know, what kind of, what is a panic attack? What are some symptoms? Like how would somebody know they're having a panic attack?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, A panic attack is a thing that almost many, many adults will experience at least once in their life. And some of the best estimates I've seen, at least in the U.S. is like about 11% of all U.S. adults will experience a panic attack in the next 12 months, which is Like 28 million people. It's a lot of people, right? So it's actually a more common experience than we think. A panic attack is basically what happens when, presumably, out of the blue, that fight or flight mechanism that's wired into all of us to keep us alive, to prepare us to flee a threat or fight for our lives or get out of danger is triggered for no reason that we can see. And so we wind up with all of the naturally occurring reactions and symptoms and sensations and thoughts that are designed for a specific environment, which is one where we need to be safe, except that we're already safe. So we do not know why our heart is pounding and we're sweating and we can't breathe. And our vision is weird and our legs are shaking. And we have this sense of impending doom and we don't know what it is. And it's, terrifying and there's no reason for it. We don't know what it is. So anybody who's ever experienced an actual panic attack will know what I'm talking about. It's not just feeling anxious. It is feeling like you are in immediate mortal danger and not knowing why and not knowing what to do about it.
1: Yeah. You know, honestly, I have to say I had my, my, kind of the last one that lasted four days about four or five years ago. And it's so insanely intense. Um, You wake up with it, you go to bed with it, you can barely sleep. Basically, if you get like two, three hours, you're great, but it's Mm -hmm. super intense. And um, for anybody listening, I'm sure some people might wonder, is there, is there nothing that kind of, there's nothing that kind of triggers it per se, or are there things that can trigger or bring on a panic attack or does it just happen to occur on its own?
2: Well, we call it a panic attack when it occurs for seemingly no reason, right? But I mean, there's a lot of argument that says, sure, you might be in a particularly stressful time in your life. Maybe you just experience a major loss in your life or you're having financial troubles or all of these things. And you know, you just get to the point where it bubbles over and you might experience a panic attack where that can happen. I'm always addressing the situation where the panic attacks are recurring, and you don't know why they're happening. And if there was a particular trigger, it stops mattering because you're just now worried about having the next panic attack. But many people have panic attacks. And some, and here's the interesting thing when I say, you know, 11% of the US adult population will have a panic attack in the next 12 months, but a small percentage of those will develop panic disorder. So many people don't know why they panicked, or they will understand, oh, yeah, I'm really under the gun. And man, that sucked. But then they'll just move on. And like, well, I hope it doesn't happen again, but we had that. I hated that. And I'm just under the gun and that's probably why it happened. And they're okay with that explanation. I'm always addressing a population in which, oh no, no, I need to find out what it is because I can't let that happen again. And then things snowball.
1: Yeah. And you know, um, the other thing speaking about this, you, you did uh, kind of in your part of the introduction was that you were, you were dealing also, also with agoraphobia and I'm sure anybody listening, um, a question I'm imagining an audience might have as well. Well, what is that exactly? So would yeah. you mind also kind of talking a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, we can talk about agoraphobia. People sometimes think that agoraphobia is like it's its own thing. Somehow I, I got agoraphobia. You don't get agoraphobia. You actually, believe it or not, in, in my opinion, in my interpretation, you learn to be agoraphobic. So agoraphobia doesn't always come along with panic attacks. It can happen without panic attacks, but the most common form of agoraphobia Is where somebody starts to develop panic attacks or has panic attacks in a recurrent way, can't figure them out, can't make them go away, and then they begin to respond to those by avoiding any situation that they think might trigger a panic attack. And since they panic in this situation, they won't do that anymore. Then they panic over here, so they won't do that anymore. Then they won't go to the supermarket. Then they won't go to the school pickup line. Then they can't drive on the highway. And avoidant behavior just takes over, and your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller until... Technically, agoraphobia doesn't mean you're stuck in your house. That's how most people know it. But it means that you have developed an incredibly restricted lifestyle where very few places are, air quotes, safe to you, and you will refuse to do most of life without some really big conditions like I have to take a pill or I have to have my essential oils or my safe people with me. That's agoraphobia. It's an extreme uh, expression of avoidance. To try to avoid how you will feel if you panic or have high anxiety
1: yeah isn't that incredible um just in terms of human nature and and the things we will do and the length we will go to 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 try to solve in any way possible feeling really bad bottom line right feeling horrendous yeah
2: we're Um, very creative when it comes to that it's amazing yeah
1: it is it really it is it is and you know i mean i i deal and i work predominantly with just for whatever reason but like in my practice i have like 95%, it's all OCD folks. But you know, similarly, right with OCD, it's it's so much avoidant behaviors or repetitive behaviors. But again, great, great lengths that we all as humans go to and and we are very creative. And I mean I have OCD. So like I definitely know things I used to do, you know, to try to avoid it. It's just incredible. Um and, you know with that, I do want to ask you the next thing, which is, you know, if somebody who's listening right now and they are kind of resonating with this, like, oh yeah, I have this or I've dealt with this um, what would you say are things that they could do, or how do you how do you handle this? How do you treat it?
2: Well, the hard thing is what you just described. Like most people, listen, humans are hardwired to go away from discomfort. We seek safety. We seek reassurance. We seek, you know, we seek safety and, and comfort and soothing and all of those things. We don't want to go toward hard things. But the bad news is that when you get stuck in a loop where you are avoiding and trying desperately to not trigger the next anxiety spike or the next panic attack, you're almost assuring that the next one's going to come. And then that can lead to I need to avoid this. I need to avoid this. You can ritualize your whole life, different diets, different – I can only eat this. I can only drink this. I have to do this. I have to <laughs> tap. I have to – Right. So it gets so extreme that the way that you start to unravel that is to start to see all the things that you are trying to do to control it. And then you have to back away from those things little by little, which is super scary because that's going to mean, but that's protecting me. And you have to learn, no, it's never, never been protecting you. I know that your first panic attack scared the hell out of you and you don't want to have another one ever again. You hate them. But we have to learn that even when they happen, they are not dangerous and you can handle it and it's okay. And the goal is to take away all the avoidant behavior so you learn that you're safe anyway, I can handle it, and then you're not afraid to panic anymore. I don't want to panic. Don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for it. But I know now that if I have a panic attack, which I can have maybe a couple times a year, it's over in 15 minutes, and then I'm shaky for 30 minutes, and then I move on. That's where you want to get. That's hard. It's a hard sell for people, though. Like-
1: yeah, that's, you know, I mean, I think that that's kind of the conversation usually, right, is I would say all any and all anxiety things, it, it's the goal is really to interact with those items or engage in those situations, because it's a way to reteach yourself that inherently feeling uncomfortable or anxious or any of those feelings is not is not life threatening. Nobody's died from a panic attack. It can feel like you're going to die, but oh, but sure. nobody's really died from a panic attack. And You know, it's an extremely uncomfortable situation. And so part of what I'm hearing you say, too, is if somebody wants to get better, it's really kind of initially kind of wrapping their mind around that you're going to need to kind of create a a way or a pathway or steps to -hmm. start to reengage and kind of take some of your life back and and get back into things.
2: Yeah, you're going to have to stop trying to control it. And avoid it and stop it and manage it because you you can't. It, it, for very, the large majority of people that try to do that, it doesn't work or doesn't work consistently. So many people will get into a rut where they find like, oh, if, if I follow this special diet and I don't go to these places and I make sure my life is always like this, then I'm okay. But then as soon as that apple cart gets upset, because it does and life does that to us, it all falls apart and then they're back to distraught and like, I don't know, like, nothing works for me but that's because what you're trying to do is is control a function in your body that is not wrong it's just triggered at the wrong time so it's like trying to stop your body from doing a thing it's designed to do you just have to teach it to stop doing it at the wrong time that's all so yeah i
1: love that that's such a great way to frame it exactly it's learning how to work with your own system that's exactly yeah. right right it gets tri- it just gets tri- tripped up at the wrong time over the wrong things yep.
2: Yep.
0: But,
1: you know, like you said, you're learning how to understand that about yourself, essentially, and, and get a different relationship with it so that you don't have to overreact and overprotect and all that.
2: And there's, there should be comfort in the idea, when I gave those numbers in the beginning, that so many people will have a panic attack this year, but not interpret it as horrible. So. Consider that like many, many people have panic attacks and never develop panic disorder or agoraphobia. Why is that? There's your proof that I know it feels like you're going to die or go crazy or go insane, but you're not. And these people, for some reason, don't share your interpretation. So follow their lead, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. A person with panic
2: attacks but not panic disorder has a panic attack, hates it, and then says, well, I guess I got to go on with my day now. Follow that lead, if you will, even though it seems ridiculous for me to say that. I get that.
1: Yeah. You know, so I have a question for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things maybe you come across this as well, right? But sometimes when kind of providing education or talking to folks, um, there can be this whole concept around motivation because the fear takes over, doubts take over. How do you I'm just curious, how do you how do you address that or how do you how do you talk about it?
2: So the, the motivation is a tough one. People ask me all the time, like, well, how did you what made you get better? How did you decide to do all these scary things? And there was a lot of things. I mean, honestly, I started to be just I was so over myself to a certain extent. I'm making a joke, but it's true. And I felt not only was I failing on a daily basis, but I started to feel like a failure in life as a a dad and as a life partner and as a businessman. Like it was controlling my life. And the pain of the avoidance got greater than the pain of the fear in the moment. Mm. And that drove me to say, okay, I'm going to have to, I got to do this a different way. So motivation can be found a lot of different places. You know, sometimes your family motivates you, sometimes your career, sometimes your education motivates you, but you have to reach the point where the pain of staying where you are is greater than the pain you feel going toward the fear, if you will. Yeah. Does that make some sort of sense? That's a hard, that's a very guru sounding thing to say, but that is.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it is because that's what I was going to ask. I kind of find myself just in, in just lived experience of life and, and in general with, with clients with so on. But it's kind of like, yeah, like it's almost like we have to hit some sort of um, like, it has to get bad enough mm-hmm. that you're like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I I'm willing to do something else. I'm whatever that is. And a lot of times I, I find myself hearing that more often than not. Yeah. Um, even though I know that like, in different therapies, like in acceptance commitment therapy, you know, we mm-hmm. want to connect with values and, and, of use a different approach more of like let's look at the thing you want to look forward to that's important for you that's meaningful to help drive you forward um and i think you know yeah that that also works um but it's just interesting because i think so far just from direct lived experience most people i will say really that i hear that they really make a change when it really just gets bad that they're just like, i just don't want to do this anymore like this is this is too limiting this is too restricting i'm tired of this like you said i'm over my own self
2: yeah And it's not that easy. I don't mean to minimize it and say like, oh, one morning I woke up and I just decided to get better. That's not the way it really works. But I love that I'm a huge fan of acceptance commitment therapy and I think connecting with your values. This type of anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, you know, OCD, it will take your values and swipe them right off the table so there are none left. But then you start to experience the pain of missing those values. And it starts to happen slowly and like, wait a minute, this took everything from me. And I let it. And I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm going to go get those values back. And start to pile them up again, and start to move toward them again. And that's when you start to really do the scary work. But I do agree that for some people, and some people who listen to me and hear these techniques, and they're scary, and they're hard, and they resist them. Sometimes you're just not ready to do them. I don't know if you agree with that or not. But I, I would never force anybody to do it. Sometimes you just need more consequence. You know, and hey, if I can just avoid a little more, my life is fine this way. Okay, that's an invalid decision. and I respect that decision. Sometimes you have to be you have to get to the point where you just can't stand it anymore, and then you start to do it different.
1: Okay. I, I have to say, I do agree, and that's definitely a common thing I, I hear from people just all around is that essentially that that they're not either ready or they're just or they have a really kind of belief that this is still okay. I'm still managing, even though things clearly are not okay. But mm-hmm. it, again, it speaks to that point, right? Is that it's like no, it has to like something else has to happen to finally you know, get yeah. folks to understand that this is not a way to live. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, until that point, it's everybody's decision, right? If, if somebody's like, well, I'm okay with this. This is, this is fine for me, the way I'm doing things now, then, okay, that's, that's totally, you know, a choice that you get to make and that's your life. Um, and just like, you know, we talk about willingness, like you don't have to always be ready is what I say, but are you willing to feel uncomfortable, right? Because when are we really a hundred percent ready for whatever, like sometimes I guess, but not really. I'd say yeah. we're more willing to have experiences or willing to do certain things because something about it is either important to us or somebody's important to us and they're asking us to do it, or but yeah. usually it's something like that. And it's more that willingness to to have um, yeah, just to feel sometimes uncomfortable, but then remembering what it's for, right? It's it's for that
2: relearning. Right. Why am I doing this? And people sometimes get a little bit dicey with like, this sounds cruel. You're telling me to intentionally trigger myself and intentionally be afraid. Well. If you don't understand why and you're not connected to the why at that level where, like, I need, I really want to do this to get better, then I get that. Because if you don't remember why you're doing those, it would seem like a form of self-torture. That's true. So right. understanding and that psychoeducational part of it where you start to understand the principles and the mechanics, like, oh, this is why I have to do this scary thing. I don't want to do it. It's fair. But, yeah, that that's really important. But that thing where, like, people think they should, like, just have to be ready. Well, you might not be ready from a life standpoint, that's fine. But ready where like, well, I have to find a way to not be so afraid that you'll never be ready for. You only are less afraid after you do the things while you're afraid. And that's always a hard thing to say, but it's true. So,
1: yeah. And then do you find that it's helpful for folks to start with something kind of like a small little step just to help them kind of learn and show themselves to build that confidence? Like, okay, I I got through that. I could do it. What am I learning from that? that? And then, okay, can I do something else?
2: Yeah. Like, you know, in the old school, we would call that graduated exposure and it still counts or gradient exposure. I've heard incremental exposure. I talk about being systematic and incremental, and I think that's the best way to do it. So if you are dealing with if you're housebound because your panic attacks are so intense whenever you go out, as an example, which is very common, there's nothing wrong with starting like by literally timing some time at your front door with your coat on in a panic because you feel like you're about to go outside I had to practice literally learning how to go back out my door. Those were terrifying moments, but it's okay to start that way. You don't solve this problem by going from stuck on your sofa for six months to taking a vacation across the country in, in a week and you fix it. It doesn't it rarely if, ever works that way. Start as small as you need to. If it triggers your discomfort and your fear and you don't want to do it, you're on the right track, no matter how small that is. I you know people fall. that started with as things as small as changing their behaviors in their house. And some people listening will understand this. Starting to shower with the door closed could be a start for some people. So anybody who is ever like, I'm afraid to be in the shower because what if I pass out or I die in the shower? They won't get to me if the door is closed. Sleeping with your door locked instead of your house open so the EMTs can get to you. Those are perfectly fine places to start. That counts. Beautiful.
1: So, yeah. yeah. And and can you would you if you're open to it, would you mind just sharing a little bit? Because I'm sure people might be wondering, you know, you, you mentioned you know, you're you in full recovery. What are some of the steps and you gave some examples? What are some of the steps you took?
2: So when I did it, my biggest. So my problems over the course of 25 plus years was I was one of those unfortunate people that had a panic attack, which I will never forget my first one. I, they will stay with me forever. It's a very impactful experience. And that quickly, I was a textbook example of how it quickly turned into, excuse me, it turned into panic disorder. And from there, I developed agoraphobia because of my my response to that was avoidant. And I went in and out of that for, for quite a few years, 25 plus years of my life. I was probably diagnosable with OCD because, as you know, the symptomology just sort of runs all together at some point. So I dealt with intrusive thoughts about my food being poisoned. I... It was not fun. Um, I dealt with an abs- unhealthy, ridiculous, unsolvable obsession with death and existence. So I had a existential OCD, probably if I had been diagnosed. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I went through periods of clinical depression. So what did I do? Is I literally started going directly to do the things that would trigger my panic every single day. Like mm-hmm. I just got so fed up with it that for me I was agoraphobic. So I'd have to leave the house, get in the car, and drive away by myself. And I spent months literally driving every morning during a very cold winter around my neighborhood then a little more than a little more than a little more than taking bigger steps onto the bigger roads and I had to build that little by little so those are the things that I did and I had to drop all of my make sure I have cold water make sure I have mints make sure I have this it was tedious boring hard slogging discouraging work sometimes but it works and that's what I did. That was my specific situation. Everybody's will be a little different based on their particular triggers and their lifestyle. Sure, yeah. That's what it looked like for me. It was probably... And how good-
1: long did it take you to get better?
2: Uh People ask me that all the time. And I think it takes you however long it takes. You know, for me, I did the work. I first of all had the privilege because I own my own business. I will accept that. And so I had the privilege of a, of a flexible schedule. I owned my own business that I couldn't go to, by the way. I would not go to mm. my own business, which was only eight miles from my house. So that sucked. But um, in fact, one of my goals was to get back to my own office. So it took me, I would say, that I got to about 70 to 80% in probably six to eight months. I can't tell because as you probably know, there's no day when I woke up and said, I'm recovered. I actually don't know when it happened. It just happens gradually. The last 20% where there were big things like I'm going to drive into New York City by myself or I'm going to fly somewhere by myself, those are not things that happen all the time. I live not too far outside of New York City, but... The last 20% took much longer, another year or more. I didn't fly for like three years because I didn't have to. So uh, it was a good six or eight months before I was living what I think was a reasonably normal life. But I just had to keep pushing and pushing to make sure I got all the way. Wonderful. Who knows? I've seen people recover very quickly in months, but I've seen people take two years. It, 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 takes, it takes what it takes.
1: Exactly. I I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I I think everybody is always curious, kind of, well, what, how long did it take you? Right. Because, but the the truth is, it's true. It it, it really depends on, as far as I see it as, you know, how much work you're willing to really put in and, you know, you'll get, you'll reap the benefits. Like you were saying, you were, you chose to do something every single day. Um, you know, and that moves you forward. And then of course, you know, there's, there's life and (laughs) life is happening all the time. So there's other things that could be going on those days that whatever, whatever may make it more difficult or challenging. And, but Mm. again, like you were saying is that you got to just keep showing up and keep doing it.
2: Part of it was like accepting that life was happening around me and not only just doing my planned exposures, which most of that was driving or being home alone. It was starting to say yes again to life things. Mm. And I have found in my experience with a very large number of people and in my own experience that making life part of recovery made it far more durable because I had a wider and broader experience. I didn't learn to go to the supermarket and drive on the highway. I learned to do life again, which was – I know that's another guru sounding ridiculous thing and I hate to say stuff like that, but there was truth in that.
1: But so. I love it, and I think that's exactly true. I think that's that's what happens. People we put we give anxiety whatever the anxiety issue you're dealing with, but we we give it too much power. It's like we put all our faith and trust into that, and mm-hmm. then we start to listen to that versus saying no, no, no. Let me put my faith and trust back in myself and in my actual life. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's a very uh, excellent point to make, and for anybody listening, you know, really take take that to heart and and check in with yourself, right? Like how much has your anxiety taken from you, and you know, let's let's get, go ahead and get it back, right? Because you can, you can have it back, and you can have a beautiful life.
2: And in the end, it was really just rebuilding. Like everybody, every human being has a relationship with anxiety in some way, shape, or form. I just had to rebuild that normal relationship, so I could still be anxious now and then because I'm alive. I just I'm not just afraid to be anxious anymore.
1: Yeah,
2: It serves its purpose like it was supposed to now.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking about this. Um, Um, If anybody wants to find you, how can they find
2: you? All the stuff is on theanxioustruth.com. Just go there. Like all my social media, the podcast, the books I've written, all that stuff. Just go to my website, theanxioustruth.com, and it's all there.
1: Perfect.
0: Thank you so
2: much, Drew. You're welcome, Christina. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to OCD Whisperer Podcast. If you want to take your recovery journey to the next level, our online class, be OCD-Free ERP Mindset, may be the right thing for you. It features video lessons, journal prompts, and worksheets designed to help you break the OCD cycle. Access it now and start thriving today at www.coreresults.com forward slash e-learning. All links are in the show notes.